Good morning. Before I preach this morning, let me mention two quick things. Uh, number one, uh, Veritas is our college and career ministry. That meets at my house on Friday evening. So if you are college or college age, let me know, and we'd love to have you join us. We had a very packed house last Friday night. It was lots of fun. Um, Wednesday evenings is Crossroads. Crossroads is our middle school and high school ministry. And just to be clear, middle school is 6th grade to 8th grade. So 6th graders are welcome. So 6th grade to 12th grade. Uh, this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, uh, they had a great turnout last Wednesday. So if that's you, uh, come this Wednesday. Well, let me pray once again as we jump back into the Gospel of John. Father, we uh, thank you for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the light of the world. We pray that he would come shed light into our darkness now. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Many, many years ago, a friend of mine claimed that he could eat a live goldfish. A few moments later, mysteriously, a live goldfish showed up. And a crowd formed around Chad, and Chad held the goldfish in his fingers, and the crowd began to chant, Chad, 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 Chad. And he held it right here. And we all doubted Chad's claim that he could eat a live goldfish. So we all watched him skeptically, wondering, is he actually going to follow through on this? And we wondered because he held it there for a while, and then he'd go like this and hold it to the side. And he'd do this again and, and kind of chicken out and do this. But as the crowd got louder and louder and louder, Chad held it up like this and eventually let go. And the goldfish swam down his throat and died. And a few moments later, Chad was very uncomfortable. Now, we all were highly skeptical of Chad's claim to eat a live goldfish. So we doubted said claim. Often when people make outlandish claims, we doubt the truthfulness of those claims. I was reminded this morning, 1984, Oral Roberts claimed that if he did not raise $4.5 million within a year, God would take his life. That's a rather outlandish claim. Again, when people make crazy claims, we wonder, is this actually true? And that brings us to John 8, 12 to 20. Jesus makes a rather outlandish claim, and all the Pharisees had serious doubts about his claim. He says in a loud voice, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This was an astonishing claim. Far more astonishing than you and I realize. As a result, the Pharisees were highly skeptical. Sometimes you and I doubt Christ's claims, or we live as if we doubt Christ's claims. We wonder, Jesus, if you're really the light of the world, then why is there still so much darkness all around? Well, this passage answers that question and many others. To help us really understand what Jesus is claiming here, we're going to look at four subjects or four headings from this passage. And first is simply this, Christ's claim. 
What was Christ actually claiming? Look with me at John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Jesus spoke these astonishing words during the Feast of Tabernacles on the temple grounds. During this feast, there was an amazing ceremony known as the illumination of the temple. This is important background for Christ's claim. At dusk, the priests uh, lit four huge lampstands in one of the temple courts. Uh, These lamps were so high that they had to bring out huge ladders to light them, and this job was reserved for the young spry priests to climb up the ladders and light these lampstands. Each lampstand had four golden bowls. Each bowl contained 65 liters of oil. These were massive bowls. They were really high, and they were huge um, wicks. Once the wicks were lit, massive flames lit up the entire temple grounds. And because the temple was the highest point in Jerusalem, these lights could be seen all over Jerusalem when this festival was celebrated. And the moment these lamps were lit, pious old men began to dance around and sing for joy, celebrating God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And everyone else would join in, and they would sing, and they would dance, and they would give thanks to God all evening until the morning. And these celebrations became the stuff of legend. But what did the celebration mean? Why were these people so excited about these massive lamps burning brightly in the temple? This exotic festival celebrated something very important in Israel's history. 1,500 years before this event, God, Yahweh, led Israel around the wilderness for 40 years with a massive pillar of fire. And that massive pillar of fire was God's very presence in the midst of Israel. It was the real-life manifestation of God's presence among his people. God was present to lead Israel, to deliver Israel, and to provide light for Israel. So these pious Jews were celebrating the fact that God appeared as light, as a burning flame to light up the desert 1,500 years prior to this. Then along comes Jesus at the end of this festival during this week with these massive candelabras lit, he says in a loud voice, I am the light of the world. He was very, very clearly claiming that he is God incarnate. He was saying, I was the one who led Israel around the wilderness. I was that flame of fire. I am equal with God the Father, and I have come to rescue you and dispel darkness all over the earth. As a result of this astonishing claim, the Pharisees were highly skeptical. But what a claim. When I was in the third grade, We lived in a large house just north of Gonzaga University. This large house had a large yard. It was a dark summer evening, roughly 10 p.m. All the cousins were over, so we decided to play capture the flag in the yard. 
And again, this was a large yard on all four sides of the house. There was stuff everywhere, trees, bushes, toys, decks, porches, sidewalks, wood piles, everywhere. And again, it was dark, and there were kids running around playing capture the flag. What could possibly go wrong? Darkness, obstacles everywhere, kids running around and screaming. Well, about 10 minutes into our game of capture the flag in pitch darkness, we all heard my cousin Aaron screaming bloody murder over by the woodpile. So we all ran to Aaron, and we realized that what happened was he was sprinting full speed right by the woodpile, and he collided with a massive block of wood that was used for chopping wood. And when his shin hit that block of wood, his shin lost. And it left a deep, long, bloody, bruised gash in his shin. So when we ran up to him, he was writhing on the ground in agony, screaming, and he had to go to the emergency room and get his shin stitched back up. Why did my cousin Aaron destroy his shin on the woodblock? Because it was dark. And darkness does not enable us to see all the danger around us. That game of capture the flag really is a metaphor for our world. Our world is shrouded in darkness. As a result, you and I cannot see the danger that's all around us. It envelops us. There's the darkness and danger of consumerism and greed. There's the darkness of sexual dysphoria and sexual confusion. There is the darkness of sex trafficking, pornography, no-fault divorce, child abuse, rape, sexual abuse. There's the darkness of atheism, Islam, Buddhism, the New Age movement. There is the darkness of political oppression, political corruption, and there's the darkness of war and poverty. And that's just the darkness out there. What about the darkness in all of our own hearts? The darkness of envy, jealousy, anger, bitterness, lack of love. We desperately need light. And fortunately, according to this passage, Jesus, the light of the world, has finally arrived. But when he came, no one believed his claims. Jesus and only Jesus can deliver us from the darkness of this world. To the darkness of sin, Jesus brings the glorious light of forgiveness through his death and resurrection on the cross. To the darkness of deception, Jesus brings the glorious light of truth. To the darkness of foolishness, Jesus brings the light of wisdom. To the darkness of slavery to sin, Jesus brings the glorious light of redemption. If you feel enslaved to sin this morning, Jesus brings light. To the darkness of satanic oppression, Jesus brings the light of victory. To the darkness of futility and confusion, Jesus brings the light of meaning and purpose. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. 
I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Only through Jesus can you and I make sense of a world that is so shrouded in darkness and mystery and futility. In other words, if you do not submit to King Jesus, you will remain in darkness. Christ comes, he brings light. Does he answer every question? No. But he answers the most questions of any worldview out there. He brings light to a world in darkness. And if he's brought to light, light to you, that means that you have answers for your friends who are lost in darkness. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, but not everyone believed him. Which brings us to the second point. First, Christ claims. Second, Christ's critics. Christ claims, now Christ's critics. The Pharisees are very critical of Christ's claims. Look with me at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. The Pharisees, that is, the, the religious leaders of the day, were Jesus' fiercest opponents. They said to Jesus, Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are claiming to be the light of the world, but in the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19, we read that one needs two witnesses to prove one's claim, and you're by yourself. But there's two problems with their thinking. First of all, they're not in a court of law. And second of all, he's a divine witness, not a human witness. More on that in a moment. They are technically correct that in a court of law, one needs two witnesses. But again, they're not in a court of law. Here's the point. These religious leaders refuse to believe because they're fixated on a technicality of the law, which does not apply to the situation and which does not prove Christ's claim to be false. But they're hung up on one small minor issue. And so far in John's gospel, Christ has done many, many things to prove his claims to be reliable, trustworthy, and true. But the Pharisees refuse to believe because they don't want to believe. Sadly, many critics today do the same thing. They get hung up on one minor technicality because they don't want to believe because their hearts are hard. And they say things, well, you Christian, what about the problem of evil? Or, hey, you Christian, I don't believe in God because God did not heal my sick child. Or, hey, you Christian, I don't believe your claims because the world is full of hypocritical Christians. Now, these are all good questions. These are all valid concerns. But there is so much evidence for Christianity's truthfulness and for Christ's truth claims that we should not get hung up on one or two questions that can be answered satisfactorily with a little bit of open-mindedness. When people refuse to believe, it's not because they lack the evidence. It's because they don't want to believe. Last week, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everyone knows that God exists. God makes it abundantly clear in creation. 
But people like the Pharisees don't want to believe, so they think up reasons to not believe, even though there's tons of evidence that Christianity is true. And again, I don't want to minimize these concerns for a moment. These are good questions. Maybe these are your questions. If they are your questions, I'd love to talk to you afterwards about these questions. But the Pharisees are hung up on a minor detail. Now, although Christ does not need to contend for the truthfulness of his claims, he does. Which brings us to the third point. So first, Christ claims. Second, Christ critics. And third, Christ's contention. Christ is not going to contend for the truthfulness of what he's saying in verse 12. Well, how does he do that? By mentioning a few subjects. Christ contends for his claim by referring to his deity, Look with me at verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. He's saying, look, I don't have to prove my claims, but just so you know, I know where I came from, heaven, I know where I'm going, heaven, which implies Jesus is saying that I'm divine. I came from heaven, I'm going to heaven. If I'm divine, then you must believe me. Simple logic. Christ contends for his claim by referring to his deity. In addition, Christ contends for his claim by referring to his truthfulness. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. You judge, Christ says to the Pharisees, according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He says to the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. In other words, you uh, judge based on worldly standards. Then he says, um, I judge no one. Now he's not saying, I never make judgments. He does all throughout the Gospels. What he's saying here is, I don't judge like you based on your fleshly, worldly standards. Then he says, but if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He's basically saying, when I make judgments, they are perfect and right and true because I make them in conjunction with the Father. What a claim. He's saying that his close personal union with the Father ensures that all that he says and all that he does is trustworthy and true. Christ contends for his claim by referring to his deity, by referring to his truthfulness. In addition, Christ contends for his claim by referring to his star witness. Look with me at verse 17 to 20. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true, referring there to Deuteronomy 19. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Thinking he's referring to his earthly father here. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father, that is, my heavenly father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. He basically says here, look, I don't need another witness, but 
just to prove that what I'm saying is true, I have another witness, and my star witness is none other than God the Father Almighty, Yahweh, the maker of all things. He is witnessing to my claims. Where does the Father do that? We learned earlier uh, in John chapter 5 uh, that the Father witnesses to the Son's claims through John the Baptist, John 5, 33 to 34, through Christ's signs or miracles, John 5, 36, and through the witness of the Old Testament scriptures, John 5, 39 to 47. I want to unpack that now, but if you want to go back and read that, the Father is very clearly saying in those verses that he supports or bolsters the claims of his Son, Jesus. God the Father is Christ's star witness. A star witness is often what determines the guilt or innocence of someone in a court of law. Late one night, Leo Carter was playing basketball in downtown Chicago. He looked across the basketball court and across the street to a grocery store, and he happened to see a man named Elijah Baptist come out of the store with a friend, and he pulled out a gun and shot his friend three times. And then Elijah Baptist, the murderer, fled the scene and wasn't seen in weeks. But Elijah Baptist, the murderer, found out that there were three people that witnessed the murder that he committed. So he tracked down two of them and shot them in cold blood. The third witness was Leo Carter. And he tracked down Leo Carter and shot Leo Carter in the face. And amazingly, Leo Carter survived. And a few months later, Elijah Baptist was put in jail and then put on trial, and Leo Carter was the star witness in the case. Leo Carter actually witnessed. He watched as Elijah Baptist pulled the trigger and killed someone else and tried to kill him. Furthermore, Leo Carter had a reputation of being an honest, reliable person. Leo Carter was the star witness, the eyewitness And his eyewitness testimony condemned Elijah Baptist for life in prison. Again, often a star witness is what it takes to get a verdict. God the Father is the star witness. There's no one who's more reliable, trustworthy, and true. And furthermore, God the Father saw with his own eyes all that Christ had done. And Christ is saying, my claim to be the light of the world is right and true And my witness to this claim is God the Father himself. Christ contends for his claim by referring to his deity, by referring to his truthfulness, and by referring to his star witness. The Pharisees had plenty of evidence to believe Christ claims to be the light of the world. And we have even more evidence today, 2,000 years later. We have the evidence of the rest of the New Testament, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy, the evidence of archaeology, the evidence of science, the evidence of the historical um, evidence for the resurrection, the evidence of miracles, the evidence of billions of changed lives. We have all kinds of evidence to believe that what Jesus said about being the light of the world is true. Now, I'm assuming that most of you here this morning believe that Christ is the light of the world. You believe the evidence. You see it. You believe it. 
But believing the evidence is not enough. Which brings us to the fourth and final point. Christ's claim, Christ's critics, Christ's contention, and finally, Christ's converts. Who are the true converts to Christ? The answer is the ones that follow Christ. Back to verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How do we avoid walking in darkness? How do we receive the light of life? Do we pray a prayer? Do we believe certain facts? Do we become a fan of Jesus? No. According to Christ's own words, the ones who receive the light are the ones that follow Jesus. And the word follow, by the way, is a present participle, which means we must follow Jesus continually. Jesus says the same thing in Luke 9, 23 to 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Who are the true converts to Christ, the light of the world? Those that follow him, not perfectly, but consistently. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means we go wherever he tells us to go. Where is he going? To the cross. That's where he's going. And we're called to follow him there. John Calvin said the Christian life summed up is simply this. It's cross-bearing. Someone who follows Jesus is, is willing to daily, consistently, imperfectly take up their cross to meet the needs of others, to die to their own needs, to serve and love those around them. That's what it means to be a Christian. You follow Jesus to the cross, you suffer, and you die. And in doing that, ironically, you find incredible life and joy and peace. When you take up your cross and die, you're imitating Jesus. A follower says to Jesus, oh, you want me to talk to that person about you? That's scary, but I'll do it. Oh, you want me to forgive this person that sinned against me for 20 years? I don't really want to, but I want to follow you, so I'll do it. Help me do it. Oh, you want me to love my enemy? I don't really want to, but I want to follow you, so I'm going to do it with your grace and strength. Jesus, you want me to give away all that money? (sighs) Don't really want to, but I want to follow you. So I'm going to do it by faith, trusting you. I was thinking this morning about the fact that in the last couple years, 
I can think of three people who have written checks to GCF of $100,000. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Those folks are serious about following Jesus. They put their money where their mouth is. They're giving generously because they believe what Jesus says here. They're trying to follow Jesus. Is there any place this morning where you simply refuse to follow Jesus? You know he's saying to you, forgive this person, talk to this person, give this money away, or do something else. And you, you simply say, I'm not going to do that. Being a Christian means that we follow Jesus. Well, Dave, I thought we were saved by faith alone. We are. We are not saved by following. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if we really believe, if our faith is real, we're going to follow Jesus. And if we do, he very clearly says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. We all follow Christ imperfectly, don't we? And when we do, he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives. But make no mistake, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. If you refuse to follow him, how can you call yourself a Christian? To be a Christian means to follow. Who are the real converts? The followers. What do the real converts do? They spread light into all the world. Back to verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Followers of Jesus have within them the light of life. The word have in this last phrase is a beautiful word. Not only do we have Christ's light in us, but shafts of his light are meant to go out through us to a lost and dying world. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Philippians 2, 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Wherever Christianity goes, it brings glorious gospel light that brings transformation to people and societies. According to the superb book, How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt, Christians are responsible for the sanctity of human life, outline infanticide and abortion in the Roman Empire, the liberation of women, the creation of hospitals and the healthcare system, prison reform, outlawing polygamy and pedophilia, literacy in the advent of public education, dignifying labor, scientific revolution, modern notions of freedom and liberty come from Christians, the abolition of slavery, much of the world's best art and music and literature also come from Christians. And we could go on and on and on. This raises the question, what kind of light bulb are you? 100 watts, 300 watts, 1,000 watts, 5,000 watts. 
God has given you the great privilege of being light in a broken, fallen, and very, very, very dark world. And we display the light of Christ to the world as we forgive others, serve others, take up our crosses, give away our money, exude the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'm convinced that increasingly as our culture unravels, Christians are going to stand out more and more and more. Because our lives are supposed to be very unique and distinct. If we're following Jesus, the closer we follow Jesus, the more light will shine into a lost and dying world. Well, 30 years ago, I was with a friend at a lake nearby, and we were standing on a cliff about 25 feet above the water. And this friend of mine had a cast on his right leg from his big toe to his upper thigh. And he said, Dave, I'm going to jump off this cliff into the water. And we're like, Matthew, you're wearing a cast on your right leg. It was like, whatever. This was before waterproof casts, by the way. And none of us believed him, that he would actually hobble up to the edge of the cliff and jump into the water. Sure enough, 30 seconds later, Matthew jumped off the cliff with a full cast on, proving us all wrong. By the way, the rest of the week, he was spraying deodorant down his cast all week, keep it from smelling. None of us believed Matthew's claim, but Matthew proved us all wrong by jumping into the water. Jesus makes an astonishing claim. He claims to be the light of the world. And he proved it by referring to three profound witnesses. Christ has come to shed light into our darkness. And Christ has come to make us lights for a dark and lost and dying world. Let's pray together.